This is an AMI podcast. You're listening to the Kitchen Confession podcast with Chef Mary Mamalidi. You name your favorite restaurant. Think of it in your head. Think of that favorite dish you make and think of how much it cost you pre-pandemic and how much you love it with tell your friends about it. That dish became 30% more expensive post-pandemic, but it didn't get 30% better. We're coming out of an era of 22-ounce steaks on the plate. Like, who the hell needs 22 ounces of anything? Now, we're in this new world where we're in a volume world, trying to maintain healthy margins, and you do that by being creative. Stimulate me, do something for me that I can't do for myself. A chef's mandate is creativity because those are the businesses that survive these kinds of times, right? That's Jason Barato. He's a chef, an entrepreneur, and owner of Toronto's Ragu Scratch Pasta. Hey, Jason, welcome to the show. Hi, Mary. I'm super excited to be here. I can't wait. I can't wait to learn everything about one, the new spot, but I want to talk about Giancarlo Trattoria and now Ragu Scratch Pasta. For sure. So let's go back. You're a chef, your career. How did this all begin? When did you first become interested in cooking? I would have to say that my oldest memories are cooking, eating memories, simply because I grew up surrounded by incredible cooks, incredible cooks. I could tell you what this aunt made, what that aunt made, what this grandma made. I knew most people's specialties. And I was always willing to help because, uh, you know, little boys or little kids, there's nothing better for them than being acknowledged right so i got acknowledged a lot in the kitchen being setting the table uh being complimentary learning how to mix rum and cokes from my uncles and all that jazz and i found that my whole life the 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 kitchen was the hub social hub uh you know you come to my house one of my favorite things to do is i I have a dinner party but they're rarely sit down there i usually We'll do some basic prep, have eight or 10 or 12 people over, do some basic prep. And then as we're talking, I'm cooking. So usually at my house, everybody's gathered around the island and we're talking and we're drinking and I'm cooking and then they want to try it out. So they're cooking and I'm telling them what to do. And uh, before you know it, we're having this really an amazing interaction with food and wine and friends and it's fantastic, but it's not sit down and you talk to the person beside you and all that jazz. There's all kinds of commingling going on. And it's a lot more fun to make the kitchen a hub. Okay. We're going to do a little quick game of this or that. Oh, nice. Here nice. we go. Which are you? Eternal optimist or pessimist? Optimist all the way. No time for pessimism. Morning person or night owl? I'm definitely a morning person. Granola or oatmeal? Oh, I love oatmeal. Love oatmeal every morning. Give up sugar or give up salt? Oh, give up sugar all day, every day. Can't live without my salt. Red or white wine? Red all the way, baby. I love white, though. Don't get me wrong. I had to switch to white. Oh, salt fights? Yeah, the menopause wasn't so great. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, menopause, salt fights, migraines. Bang. Pizza or pasta? Oh, come on. That's not even fair. Oh, boy. I know. I know. Uh, pizza, because I'm sick of pasta. <laughs> <gasps> How do you say that? It's, I eat it three times a day. Okay, understand. <laughs> when did you decide that you wanted to become a restaurateur? It all happened through happenstance. My parents got into the restaurant business in 1980, where they opened up a cafe 
and it was called Cafe Elite. And it was super busy, super busy. They worked incredibly hard. And then they migrated or got out of that business and, and kind of went deeper into the restaurant world. So they opened up a Portuguese restaurant, which was insanely busy for eight years. That brought back memories Hamboya. So that was right on Dundas, across from the old folks. I know home. the restaurant. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. It's it's one of those that just it seems to have withstood the test of time a little bit because it was super super popular, and uh, and you know um, <clears throat> it was at a time I think where in Toronto diversity was starting to cross boundaries. So it wasn't just Portuguese people eating in Portuguese places in Italian Italian and so on and so forth. It was people starting to cross over and ex and experience different cuisines, and hence now you like my Italian friends love the Portuguese egg on steak, and now Portuguese chicken seems to be taking over KFC, which is what we grew up with when we were kids, right? And so yeah, so it's nice to see the crossover, and I I think it was one of the first places I experienced that was at my parents' restaurant. Every Friday night, I would bus. And then my my dad would we'd hop in the car and he all we always did this loop because he went to go see the other restaurants see how they were doing, and the way restaurateurs can tell if you're busy or not is you don't talk to your fellow restaurateurs because they're lying to you half the time, right? Mm -hmm. You count it's true. You count their garbage, right? No way. Yes. Yeah, so if a guy tells you, "Oh, I had the busiest night," yada yada, but he has one garbage bag outside, he's lying. <laughs> right but if, but if you go if you go like like for, here's an example go to sugo on recycle day oh my god they're at blur and lansdowne it's like where do you put all that recycling so you see that they're busy anyway so my dad would do this loop and he would look at his competitors i've never heard of this i love it right and he knew how many garbage bags he put out so he's having this garbage bag counting game right so my, my dad would pass by this one restaurant every friday and he's like, son of a bitch. We were, we did 200 people and they have more garbage out than we do. Right. And, and so, and so he just kept passing by and passing by and, and didn't matter how busy my dad was. This one restaurant always had more garbage bags out than his. Right. <laughs> so what did he do? He bought it. No. So that, that, that restaurant was Giancarlo. No. Way. Yeah. 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 That's why my dad bought it. Two reasons. So actually, that's yeah. how Giancarlo was born. That's a fantastic yeah, story. Garbage counting. <laughs> <laughs> and and unfortunately for the owners of Giancarlo at the time, they had a dysfunctional relationship. So my dad went in there, and like we were talking earlier off uh, off mic, timing and opportunity are probably the most important thing, because it just so happened, my dad inquired. At the perfect time, because the partners were like, get me out of here. I don't want to work with you. So my dad got the restaurant in, uh, I don't know, 85, 86, 87, I, I forget. And then they took it from a restaurant that had maybe 11 items on the menu, three pastas, a fish, a meat, not much, and turned it into what it became. You know, until it closed down, it was, it was considered a Toronto institution because my parents put, you know, probably 20 incredibly strong years there, really strong years. But it didn't matter where you lived, where you were from. Everyone knew the restaurant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was Everyone amazing. knew. It was very well-known, very popular, um, food phenomenal. It was definitely the place. Well, see, here's the funny thing about 
have, running a restaurant like that is you don't believe it. You never believe your hype, right? You can't. So I never believed it. I was always working like we were never the best. I was always working, working even harder. And my parents are the same way. My parents, they, didn't, they never sat on their laurels. They traveled a lot. And they were, whenever they were mind blown, they would say, okay, what can we learn here and bring it back home? And um, so I learned that from them. And they persevered. And Giancarlo's was open for over 20 years, no? Since we've had it since, I think, we, I think my parents bought an 87, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And we ran it, ran it and expanded it, right? So not only did we take that, it was a small little 40-seater that we turned into a 180-seater. And uh, it did, it did, it was a great spot. It did, like, that's the beautiful thing about my parents' businesses. They, they build businesses that do very, very well right off the bat because, my mom knows that there's no greater love than the love of food, right? So she really takes care of your belly. And my dad takes care of the environment because he wants people to be in a nice place. The feng shui is correct. The design element is correct. And the staff are treating you well. So they've always, they've always been aware of those fundamental points. You have to have a good proposition, but you got to take care of people once they come into your door. And it was all that. Yeah, they're very good at that. Very good at that. How difficult was it to decide to close it down? It wasn't difficult. It was very, very easy. And I'll tell you why. Uh, My wife and I, we bought Giancarlo for my parents in 2017. And usually you give yourself five years to kind of come flush and all that jazz. But what I did with Giancarlo immediately is I wanted to refresh it. So I spent a ton of money to refresh the dining room. And then we spent a ton of money to create a secondary business which was our cocktail bar called Salumi. And it was inspired from uh, mine and Raquel's travels in Bologna. So we went to bring a little bit of Bologna to Toronto. And we did it, and it was phenomenal. Fascinating. Like, I loved it. Uh, But what ended up happening is that uh, the money we put into the restaurant, we didn't get out. Yeah, it was coming, but we didn't get it out fully. So what ended up happening is that when the pandemic hit, I, I had a I had a very good um, uh, feeling that this was going to be a deeper issue because my dad was in Europe and Europe seemed to be about two to three weeks ahead of us with with that ripple the, the COVID ripple effect right you look at China look at Europe so you know it's come to us right so my dad called me in a panic he said this is not a joke I'm freaking out I'm scared I haven't left the apartment for three days people are really nervous. This is not a joke. I don't know what they're saying back home, but take this seriously. That was a Saturday night, and I decided to close Giancarlo, and we never reopened. That was March 16th. So what ended up happening was this, is Giancarlo had very small reserves. I didn't want to use my family's money to feed the restaurant. So it was a very easy decision because, Mary, I love my restaurants. I'm very emotionally connected to all of them. I usually don't visit many of them because they're they're not well taken care of after we've sold them. So I don't want to see it. I like the memories that I had. Think back when COVID was really hitting, okay? So imagine Giancarlo. Think of what it was to you of, of a, a nice a nice a nice environment in, 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 in the dining room, for example. Hustle, bustle, Saturday night, all that energy. Now, think of that. Stop it where every other table is empty. Glass partitions separating diners, directional arrows, servers with masks, social distancing. I'm like, no, no, no. That would kill Giancarlo's magic. And I don't, and I, and I don't think we would have survived that because we were busy, 
But Giancarlo is one of those restaurants that had to be busy to survive. It's not a restaurant that could survive being slow. Our season was shrinking because at first we're going to close in March, two weeks, everything should be back to normal. That didn't happen. That turned into two months. And then it turned into to me speaking with my wife, Raquel, saying, I don't think we're going to have a patio season. And if we don't have a patio season, we make 80% of our money during patio season. So if we don't get that money, we are going to be paying that restaurant's bills, staff, yeah. expenses, all that jazz. Just for perspective, the lease was 25K a month. You know, I, I, I'm a good saver, but I'm not that good. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. And I said, we can close it and just wait this whole thing out. But if we fund it, it'll wipe us out in six months. I'm Mary Mammoliti, and you're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast. Today, I'm talking with Chef Jason Barado, entrepreneur and owner of Ragu Scratch Pasta. The pandemic changed the landscape of the food and beverage industry. Absolutely. 100%. This is me personally. Um, I don't know. I mean, you probably, I don't know if you share the same opinion, but I don't see it um, going back 100% to what it was. I see that things come have come out of the pandemic and have morphed into new ways of doing business within this industry. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that happened, and one thing we we one thing we had realized at Giancarlo was that our restaurant was becoming a weekend restaurant. So since the Great Recession, businesses have been cutting the expenses they allow their staff to incur for social reasons. And that affects restaurants like Giancarlo. So the caterings weren't as big, the uh, uh, parties weren't as big, uh, just Bay Street showing up on a Thursday, they were not spending the way they used to because the, 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 the powers that be were tightening the, the purse strings. So I was like, wow, we're becoming a weekend restaurant. This is fascinating. It's not good because you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. You don't want your work week to be two days. So although we we're making the same money, it was nerve-wracking to know that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday were not yielding. They were not pulling their weight. That's, that's a problem. So what I started to notice was, was the price points. Because when the Black Hoofs uh, came into the restaurant scene, they were incredible disruptors. Because they were giving you top quality at a way lower price point. Way lower. So they weren't giving you like these fully designed rooms. Uh, they were being characteristic they were being personable they were the restaurant design became something quirky and more aesthetic to the individual running it than to some corporate architect uh, design company so that became the new theme so that disrupted a place like Giancarlo which is fine because industry is disruption disruption is industry so the way we realized we had to grow our restaurant in the early 2000s, we realized now that we have to shrink it back down, which is a much harder thing to do. So we were in the process of that. So we created this wonderful um, cocktail bar called Salumi, which gave people Giancarlo quality at half the price. And it was super busy. And then we were focusing on working on how to get Giancarlo back to an exclusive 40-seat dining room. And, you know, and it was a great challenge, wonderful challenge. And we were headed there. Like the biggest regret I will ever have is not seeing where the Salumi project would have, how it would have ended up because the plan was for it to take over the entire space. So it didn't happen because we shut it down. 
But here's the, the consolation is that the week I shut the, the, the entire business down, our little wine bar matched our big restaurant in sales. I was like, wow, we're headed in the right direction. Like, oh my God, it's so exciting. And that was the end of that. But to come back around, I just couldn't imagine your last memories of Giancarlo being in this weird dystopian society that looks like something more out of 1984 or Fahrenheit 451. It didn't, it didn't feel right to me because Giancarlo was magic. And a lot of people will tell you, I don't know what it is, but you go there on the right night. Wow. And it's true. Like you could feel it. And I'm not, it's not about tooting horn because the customers are just a significant part of the magic as the food and the environment and the wine. It all has to fit. And I mean, speaking of the customers, you wanted to still create some type of connection to your customer base and to develop new ones. And you came up with a new idea right now. Yeah. So we sat down and I remember at home, we had this big chalkboard and that's where we did all the fun stuff. Happy birthdays. It was like our, it was like our, our social wall. And so I erased most of it and I took a portion of it to plot the comeback, Giancarlo's comeback. It was called the grand reopening. And so we just did all kinds of things. And we spent so much time just analyzing the landscape, studying the 1917 epidemic and how did restaurants recover from that. And what I saw is everything got cheaper and simpler, way simpler. It's like we, we were being reset, culinarily speaking. Hospit- as for in the world of hospitality, we're being reset. And so, so what... I like we spent so much time trying to see where is this headed and we couldn't see it. And then in the depths of the pandemic, I was running and it was weird running in our city at seven o'clock. And it looks like it's 3 a.m. in in March or whatever, super dark and nobody's out. But what I saw were bakeries are open and hot tables were open, takeout spots throughout the entire pandemic. Because they would do pickup window or whatever, so I was talking to some owners that I that that have that some friends that have bakeries and stuff. I said, "How are you doing?" He's like, "I'm doing better than I've ever done." I'm like, "Look at that! Look at that! Good for you, number one." And it, the funniest that here's the irony of the pandemic: all the restaurant owners that I know that did really well complained the whole time. They're they're so tired. They're so busy. I'm at home sitting on my butt. They're like, oh, I'm so tired. <laughs> and so I, you know, in a way I felt bad in a way I didn't, but, but it was, I found, I found the irony, like just laughable, but everybody's losing their shirt and you're making money and you're complaining. Oh, great. And you're complaining about it. <laughs> but uh, you just never, you can never appreciate how good you have it, I guess. Anyway, so we did notice that there was this low price point simple food offer, quick pickup scenario that was happening. And at the same time, we're ordering in to support restaurants. And the one thing I noticed immediately were a lot of restaurants I enjoyed eating at were awful at delivery. Food was cold. Like I was getting undercooked pizza from my favorite spot. And I won't mention their name because they're my favorite spot and I want nothing but good for them. But I was shocked. And it's, it's a pandemic. Like, it affects you in ways you, you won't know until you've had probably the equal amount of time to just assess what just happened. The one word that came out of the pandemic, which I absolutely hate, but it's the only word that everyone was using, was they had to pivot their business. Pivot, pivot, pivot. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. 
hate that word. Although now. that's like, a good Friends just... episode. That's one of the best Friends episodes. Pivot. That's right. With the couch. <laughs> that's my favorite one. Um, okay. But that that's that's what businesses started doing, and it was it was a learning curve. Yeah, it was a big learning curve. I've spoken with a couple of uh, buddies where they pivoted, hated the pivot, went back, and now they're just they're not even they're not even doing online anything, no delivery or anything. And uh, so for us, the pivot was there was no pivot. It's the end of a chapter. We're closing this down. And the reason I was confident to do that is because in 2013, I had a meeting with my parents and I said, we need to change the restaurant. It's a dinosaur and it's dying. This blowing big money at restaurants makes no sense. It's too, it's ridiculous, actually. Like you go to a restaurant and spend 500 bucks. I'm like, wow, for what? Because what happened during the pandemic that restaurants seemingly haven't adjusted to is that you name your favorite restaurant. Think of it in your head. Think of that favorite dish you make and think of how much it costs you pre-pandemic and how much you love it with tell your friends about it. That dish became 30% more expensive post-pandemic, but it didn't get 30% better. And I have a problem with that because a chef's mandate is creativity. That's the chef's mandate. Stimulate me. Do something for me that I can't do for myself. That also includes do something for me that I can't do myself, but that doesn't leave me poor. Right? So our job is to be creative. And I'm like somebody asked me the other day, and I think it was, it was actually, I think it was you. What would you do different? I said, well, we're coming out of an era of 22 ounce steaks on the plate. Like who the hell needs 22 ounces of anything for a meal? Right? So flip it. Because I'm Michelin trained. You don't get 22 ounces of anything right? You get three ounces of meat. That's it. Over courses, right? So you don't need it. So my whole thing is like, just put less protein or romaine. Like, why do you have to have romaine in the Caesar? It's $70 a box and you're complaining about the price, but you're still buying it. That's what makes the price go even higher. Abandon romaine, go to a spring mix, Grow your own stuff. That's what we used to do on Carlo. We grew our own sprouts and our own little mini mini or, or mini greens, microgreens. We grew our own microgreens, yeah. And we made microgreen Caesars, which were way cuter and so much more satisfying. So you get like five to seven different lettuces and different tastes. And it's just it was more stimulating. But but I love what you're saying. You're doing more cost effective, but yet you're reintroducing or introducing these things to to your customers. So what happens here is you have to, okay, I'm not opening up Giancarlo. So I'm not shopping directly from farmers because they're incredibly expensive. So I, I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I cannot use VG Meats, who I love, and they take great care of the animals. They're incredible. I have to simplify it, right? Because now I'm in a business where the customer looks at the price before they look at anything else. They don't look at spaghetti meatballs. They look at, oh, $13. What's that for? Oh, okay, I'll have that. So now we're in this new world where we're in a volume world trying to maintain healthy margins and you do that by being creative because those are the businesses that survive these kinds of times right like i know the word pivot is is a brutal word because it's been overused but it's pretty important because pivot means change and change is something you cannot be afraid of it's something you must embrace okay we're gonna go on to fill in the blanks i'm always late to blank (laughs) everything (laughs) Blank is how I temporarily escape. DJing. Oh, 
I did not know that if I could go anywhere right now, I would go to blank. Oh man, I would go to probably uh, this weather. Algarve. I like the south. I want to try blank. Oh, uh, I want to try uh, the Chinese spun noodles. I've never tried that. Ooh, yeah. When you do ramen by hand, never. I've never done yeah. that. It sounds fascinating, and I actually would love to see it done. Never tried that. Would love to try that. I deserve a gold medal in blank. Uh, I deserve a gold medal in being able to make my food palatable for young children. There's some ability that I have this knack. I don't know what it is. It's not like I'm trying, but I'm one of those believers that if, if your food is good, a kid will like it. So I want to ask you, I ask all my guests, what is your kitchen confession? Okay, I'm just going to go through the file a little bit here <laughs> and look, look for a, look for a, a good, okay, so one of my favorite ones was I was training in France in the pastry section and I learned this chocolate cake. So I brought it home with me and I loved it because it was a rich decadent chocolate cake, but in a salty caramel. I was like, salty caramel? We're talking like 95, 96. We were not doing that, right? No one knew that. Yeah. So I was like, wow. Or at least no one here did. Not here, not here. So I was like, wow, this is really cool, man. So I brought it back, the pure recipe, and it was like June. I think it was June. So this old couple walks in and they sit, I think it was table five on the banquette back there, make their dinner. They're really, really happy, yada, yada. They order dessert. I'm so excited. Chocolate cake, bang it out. The man gets up at the top of his lungs and swears. He's like, who the F put salt in caramel? Really loud. Like I heard it in the back of the kitchen. I was like, oh shit. I was like, damn. And that, and I was like, I guess I should take the salt out of the caramel. But then I was like, you know what? I just came from France. I, I just I was just trained by a Michelin chef. What does that guy know, right? So I stuck to my I stuck to my guns. I said, no, we're just going to leave it as it is. We'll tell people it's salted caramel, which we were telling. And that, if I had taken it off the menu based on what that man had said, I never would have had experienced what the cake had become, and it literally became a pillar of our restaurant success. Because people just absolutely loved it. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Oh my goodness. I love talking whatever. food with you. You know this. Yeah. If people want to find you, reach out, follow you, where can they go? What can they do online? Yeah. So um, right now we're basically only online, but we have an Insta handle, which is Ragu Scratch Pasta, our at Ragu Scratch Pasta. And that's also our URL.com. And people can try your incredible dishes through yeah, any. So delivery service yep um it can try through uber skipper door and same thing just search up for ragu scratch pasta and uh hopefully we'll start to really trip the algorithm as we get new reviews and more customers and uh yeah those are those are the three spots uh the delivery platforms instagram we're working on facebook and the website is up and if i could say one thing for all of my uh my online delivery colleagues if you order online, if you're an online delivery customer, please order through the restaurant's website. Because if you order through Uber, we pay 30% more to Uber for the same order. But if you order through our website, we only pay 2.7%. So we keep a little bit more money. And that, for a lot of us, that goes a long way. Long, long it way. It does. It does. So if you love the restaurant, order through their website. If you hate them, order through Uber. <laughs> <laughs> it's that time. We've reached the end of another show. Did we get your stomach growling? 
head over to kitchenconfession.com for more recipes and foodie finds. Plus, you can check out ami.ca forward slash kitchenconfession for all the latest on the podcast. Be sure to leave a rating and review so we can keep bringing you more episodes you'll love. Our producer and editor is Matt Agnew, and I'm your host, Mary Mamalini. Thanks for listening.